What's going on, boys and girls? We have a terrific episode of Two White Lights for today. I was joined by a very, very special guest, Dr. Larry Malley, who is the president of the USAPL, and he came on to discuss the current situation and the current relationship between the USAPL and IPF. Um, we've had so much news being broken from the USAPL in the past week and a half, a lot of podcast episodes from multiple platforms, not just ours, and this episode hopefully clears the air for a lot of lifters and a lot of fans and a lot of people within the USAPL because uh, Dr. Larry Maley explained a whole lot, extremely beneficial conversation. I didn't do a whole lot of talking. I let him do most of the talking, and I think that's only appropriate because he's the one providing us with answers, and he is the best authority figure to ask uh, what the USAPL is planning to do with the IPF. So timestamps are crucial in this episode because I know a lot of people want to pick and choose what they listen to because certain concerns apply specifically to them, but also... I seriously, highly suggest that you listen to this episode from beginning to end because if you want to be informed, if you want to be kept up to date, you want to listen to everything he says because that will answer a lot of people's questions. I'm sure there will be questions that follow after, but this will answer a bulk of them. So again, timestamps are important, but here's what we discussed. He explains why the new IPF mandates in drug testing are problematic for the USAPL, what the immediate course of action would be from the USAPL if they did leave the IPF, possible talk of a pro amateur series there, uh, and the potential new IPF affiliate that could be taking place in the United States, uh, potential loss of sponsorships, and the reaction there, what he thinks about the potential loss of sponsorships, uh, the USAPL's reaction to a potential suspension in competing in a non-IPF federation. So we had the discussion with Showdown. He explains what the USAPL would do in that situation and if they would even listen to those IPF suspensions for all national meets. Uh, what are the future goals of the USAPL? We actually get into some media rights talk. Um just, just within the USAPL, uh, what steps would need to be take taken in order to leave the IPF? He does a great job explaining that, and there hasn't been a definitive answer that they are leaving the IPF. So that will clear the air for a lot of people, because I think a lot of people at this point think that the uh, USAPL has left the IPF, based on some podcast titles, uh, King of Lifts. Um, and his response to the speculations that the USAPL may not be drug-free, quote-unquote, and he also gives a closing statement on pretty much the mission and the goal of the USAPL. Again, fantastic episode. Those timestamps are important, um, and I'm sure there'll be more episodes to come with certain members in the USAPL uh, to you know continue to clear the air on this topic. But, of course, before we get into that, got to talk to you guys about Leflar Bros., Ladies and gentlemen, visit leftlarbros.com and get yourself some merchandise. Follow them on Instagram so you can see all the designs and the Leflar family growing. It is the best powerlifting merchandise out on the market right now. I am very confident in saying that. The comp tees, the regular tees. You look great on the platform and in the gym if you get some Leflar Bros merchandise. So use promo code 2WLF checkout, 2WL15, my mistake, at checkout to save yourself some money. The best Discount code of powerlifting. Also, you can get two white lights merchandise on leftlarbros.com. 
You can only find it there. We just released the top rope tee, which I love. People seem to love it. The design on there is just A1 fantastic. And they also have the Fight Night tee and the original tee. And of course, the dad hat for all you dads out there and non-dads like myself. You can use that same probe, same code 2WL15 in order yourself to save some money. Also, go to Rivalist.net and get yourself some informed choice supplements and save yourself some money by using promo code ANGELO15. Informed choice supplements are important because you don't want to break a drug test at one of these local meets by having some sort of banned substance. That little label is going to save some lives. So branch amino acids, pre-workout, protein powders, all that informed choice supplements on Rivalist.net. Also, visit Lift.net to get yourself some Stoic gear. Stoic gear is what I wear in the gym and on the platform. It's the only gear I wear because I love it so much. I wouldn't wear it if I didn't. Use promo code ANGELO10 to get yourself some affordable knee sleeve singlets and wrist wraps. And also, you're going to look great if you buy them as well. Remember that code ANGELO10. And don't forget to follow Notorious Lift on Instagram and sign up for the newsletter and get some no slip drip slippers. You have to sign up to his newsletter because if you go on Notorious Lift, you can't find everything that you want and need, and people get disappointed because they have so many color waves, they have so many different designs that they want to match their gym attire and their platform attire perfectly, but you have to sign up for a newsletter because you have to be on the lookout for those exclusive drops. They drop periodically, they drop monthly. Sign up for the newsletter and don't miss out on your no slip drip notorious lift slippers. Also, we're available on Spotify. Follow us there. We're available on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe there. Leave a five-star rating. Leave a review. That is very important for two white lights. Hopefully you guys know that. I understand we have to improve the sound. If we get some more subscriptions, we can actually do that. What a concept, right? So Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify. We're also available on twowhitelights.com. And without further ado, here's the highly anticipated episode of Two White Lights. And as promised, I got with me a very special guest, the president of the USAPL, Dr. Larry Malley. How are you doing today, sir? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm great. I'm very happy that you're coming on the podcast. This is probably one of the podcasts I'm most excited to do because I think we're going to answer a lot of questions. We're going to provide a lot of transparency with the USAPL lifters. And I think that's been big for uh, USAPL recently is communicating with the lifters. And that's something that the lifter has wanted for a long time. And uh, we're seeing it. So thank you for that. Yep, no problem. Everyone knows uh, the past like three episodes have been pretty heavy into the USAPL IPF discussion, uh, the relationship between the two. That's where this topic is going to be centered around. We post it on our Two I Light story, specific questions that you guys have in relation to that. Um, and I think we still need to start here. What in, specifically about the new mandates that the IPF created that the USAPL had to follow 
didn't sit right with the USAPL. Well, to, to, to go back in history some, um, really the mandates are sort of updates of the mandates that we originally received in November of 2018. And at that point, uh, we received what was basically a cease and desist order in terms of our testing program. Mm -hmm. So from the, we, we didn't comply, by the way. Um, and following that time into about mid-2019, August of 2019, um, we went through negotiations with the IPF. Our lawyers talked to their lawyers, basically, mm -hmm. and hammered out an agreement that what we would do is do third-party testing at nationals, all WADA testing, um, and, and basically to... Um, looked like we had a more WADA compliant, more um, legitimate in their eyes looking testing program for our elite level athletes. Mm -hmm. and, and that is in fact what we did. Um, and just as an example, um, at Raw Nationals, we use PwC. It's a, a WADA accredited firm out of Germany to do the collections. And we did about 130 WADA tests at, at that competition. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we moved right on through that process um, in terms of third-party collections all through 2019 and 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 into 2020. Um, the only uh, larger scale meet we had was the Arnold Sports Festival, but mm -hmm. um, same conditions applied. Um, third-party testing and and all WADA test at that competition. Um, in fact, we tested every world record, mm -hmm. um, re regardless of age class or age group. Um, and so that brought us basically um, closer to where we are now, which is uh, continuing dissatisfaction on the part of the IPF with several aspects of our, our testing program. Mm -hmm. And, and to, to cast it in terms of history um, and, and be a little historical, we started out in 1981 as the American Drug-Free Powerlifting Association, and, and one of our cornerstones was that we would do drug testing at every meet. Um, and, and we have done so from a, a really sort of a humble beginning. Um, the initial mandate was you will do one test of, of some sort at every competition. And we allowed um, blood testing and urine testing and polygraph testing um, to the evolution of our testing program um, to a 10% threshold, um, again, in every competition. Um, the dissatisfaction with that was um, that we weren't doing all water testing and we used we use accredited forensic laboratories. We used a series of them over the years, currently Redwood Toxicology, um, for much of the testing at our local level. Mm -hmm. And that allowed us to, in 2019, um, do about 2,500 tests. Um, but the, the conflict at this point is has to do with the 2021 um, World Anti-Doping Code which is a, a different, um, it's really a different kind of animal. Mm 
Um, and those are the reasons cited for um, what is essentially a new cease and desist order. Um, you will do no non-audit testing. You will do none of your own testing. Um, nor will you do therapeutic use exemptions or any results management. Mm. Essentially a hands-off approach to testing. And, and that's basically where we are at, the, at this point. Um, we were essentially mandated, I guess, if you will, to, to use one of the two agencies um, recognized in the United States by, by the IPF and by WADA. One of them is USADA. Um, the other is the Canadian Center for Ethics and Sport, um, who manages all of the IPF testing. Mm-hmm. And, and through that process, um, we actually went out to bid with them. Um, and, and to duplicate the level of testing we have right now um, would have been approximately $4 million a year. Okay. Um, and, and I think it's safe to say that that's significantly more than double of our budget entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question really came down to um, whether we would do, whether we would continue to test as we do today or whether we would cut testing sufficiently to be able to afford it. Our, our drug testing budget annually is about 300000 a year, more or less. Um, and for, for that figure, um, we can do approximately 200 tests a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there, I guess, lies one of the issues that are, are the crux issues for us. Um, in all honesty, it seems insufficient. Um, it sells short much of our constituency who, um, in, in, I guess one of the things we believe, and I'm speaking for the executive committee at this point, um, we believe that everybody is entitled to a fair platform. Um, whether they're at a 10 lifter local meet or um, whether they're raw nationals with a thousand people. Um, And, and so that's a hard pill for us to swallow. Um, The thought that um, for the money that we can reasonably afford to spend, um, we'll go from 2,500 tests to 200 a year. Then, Obviously, there are the logistical questions. What do we do with it? Um, where do we put those 200 tests? And, and one of the questions that you sent me earlier um, had to do with the registered testing pool. Um, the water code mandates that you have one. Um, and the people in that pool um, have to be tested three times every calendar year. So... If we had 20, that would be 60 of those 200 tests right off the bat. Um, so that's that's one of the sticking points for us. Okay. Um, I, I, I talked a long time, but... No, um, perfectly fine, because you gave a lot of useful information there. And, I mean, is, is that where the negotiations either kind of broke down or you couldn't find a middle ground there? Because it that would completely, in my opinion, tarnish what the USAPL is trying to accomplish. Um, and that's the reason why so many lifters are part of the USAPL. It's not because the best get drug tested. It's if you're at a local meet, 
there's going to be a population of lifters who will get drug tested no matter what. So is that where you guys just really couldn't find a middle ground as the values are totally different? Well, that's one of the areas. Um, there, there are several other areas, and, and I, I might as well just go through them. One of the areas in, is in the area of therapeutic use exemptions. And contrary to um, a fully independent system, which means somebody besides us basically looks at all those applications and, and determines who does it, and we have an internal panel, and that panel is comprised of, there are five of us, I'm on it, um, but I'm the subject matter expert in ADHD, what I do for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a physician um, who's an ER doctor. We have a, a PharmD, doctor of pharmacology. Um, we have a MD, PhD, um, who does pain management, um, and we have a master's level nurse whose specialty is in respiratory therapy and infusion therapy. So it's an eminently qualified group. Um, but um, to get back to the reasons why we have a divergence of opinion here, um, it has been clear and it's been stated unequivocally both at the national level and the international level that therapeutic use exemptions for testosterone are allowed. Um, We don't allow them. Um, And the reason we don't allow them, uh, although obviously there are legitimate medical reasons for use of testosterone, um, it's also a system that is is highly prone to abuse. Mm. And while sitting in judgment of um, another federation's therapeutic use exemptions, we, we detected um, a case that's kind of reflective of the concerns with that. Um, an athlete who was on hormone replacement therapy basically adjusted his own medication as the training got heavy. And, and there's a problem. Yeah. Basically, if you, if you have free access, um, you can change it at will. Um, then you may. And, and so approval of testosterone um, was, was almost a deal breaker for us. One of the things that we're, we're aware of is that there, there are federations out there, there are 50-some in the U.S. at this point, um, but there are federations out there that both allow testosterone use and there are those that don't drug test. Um, and, you know, Sometimes we're not a good fit for people mm. and we don't want to tell them not to lift, but, um, but we do want to tell them that you can't do it here. And, and so that was a, that was a sticking point for us. Um, other sticking points um, exist as well. The issue of not being able to select people um, to be tested. And, and I would say that um, one of the concerns obviously is, and if you look internationally at sports federations, they're, they're rife with examples of federation officials who um, deflect testing away from some people in some countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand the problem. Um, but then again, the flip side of that is that we have standards, basically. And the standards are that if, if you 
if you make an exceptional performance, um, and to, to use an example from Raw Nationals, um, somebody jumped 42 and a half kilos to break the American record in the deadlift after a, a somewhat unremarkable performance up to that point. It, it's a red flag. Um, and, and so we selected that person because it was an unusual performance and an American record for testing. They passed, by the way, um, and they passed after that, by the way. Um, but, um, but it's a concern for us. Someone um, comes out of the woodwork, um, destroys the competition. Um, we want the, the latitude to say this person needs to be tested. Using the international standard, we're not allowed to do that. Um, and, and here's here's a sort of a, I, I guess, a difference between us and them. Um, it, at every meet, starting at the local level and up to the national level, um, those of us with a good deal of experience look at performances. Um, so if, if I were to be the drug testing officer, you would see me sitting there on my phone looking at the American records. Um, so we know who's making unusual performances. Um, our drug testing database allows us to, to track lifter performances over time. Um, so if a person goes along and all of a sudden they're 22% stronger, um, that's an indicator for us. And, and obviously there's the, the, the look and the behavior profile and those kinds of things. Um, basically, while we use some a algorithms, that's a word you'll hear a lot of internationally, um, a statistical formula to determine who's testing, um, it's also impacted by day-to-day -day data. Okay. And, and so during our collegiate nationals, um, we had a contract that said basically you can use algorithms, um, but we want to have input. In, in terms of things that we think are suspicious. Because, again, we're in the catching business. Uh, we're not in the testing business. We want to catch people. Um, and if we don't, then all the better. Um, it means that people, um, at least as best we can tell, are not using. But if they are using, we want to catch them and send them down the road. Mm -hmm. um, but our request to include certain people at that meet was denied. And so that was a sticking point for us. The sticking points are further compounded by uh, the fact that um, we tend to keep track of lifters who are tested. Um, the drug testing database you asked about um, in your questions, we still have that. Um, it's not publicly visible at this point, but we still have it. So we know who's been tested. We know where they've been tested, um, when they've been tested, and how often they've been tested. Um, the person who's been tested the most in U.S. state powerlifting is 69 times um, over a long, long career. But mm -hmm. um, So that person, we're fairly clear um, that either they're way better than technology and smarter than we are, or they really are not using something. But that's a kind of profiling we look at for people, because if they're using, we want to catch them. Those are the major sticking points between us and the IPF at this point. Okay. Yeah, so it looks like those sticking points are really reaching a little bit of a fever pitch right now. And it seems like it's as, the conversation is as close as ever as the USAPL leaving the IPF. So if 
the USAPL does in fact leave the IPF, what's the immediate follow-up going to be from the USAPL? Is there going to be ways to incentivize uh, lifters to stay? There's been talks of if the USAPL does in fact leave the IPF, there will be most definitely an IPF affiliate within the states that could get certain USAPL lifters out of it. So what would be the immediate course of action on the USAPL standpoint? I think there are two questions, and let me answer yours first and the one that's implied second. Mm -hmm. um, what would we do next, basically, without an international affiliate, at least in the immediate term? Um, one of the things that, that I think people don't understand, and this kind of goes to the second issue of another affiliate, one of the things people don't understand is how much it costs to play at this level. Um, Mid-six figures um, participate in the IPF. And so if we didn't participate in the IPF, and, and um, let me tell you what some of those things are that go into the IPF. Um, one of them is the money we give them directly. It's about 100,000 euros a year mm -hmm. um, in entry fees and drug testing fees and other various fees and doping fines and um, what have you. Um, but there are other things that are cost play in the IPF, including uh, travel for and hotel and stipends for coaches, um, travel and hotel and stipends for referees. We're required to have a referee. Um, paying for referee certification, um, paying for referees to come here um, because the IPF requirement basically is if you're going to set a world record, i.e. last time we did the Arnold, um, you have to have three referees on a platform from three different countries and three referees and a jury from three different countries. And so we pay for that in order to legitimize those things. Um, in addition to that, there are indirect costs. Um, those are primarily staffing. Um, and the staffing issues are that there's a good deal of behind-the-scenes paperwork to participate in the IPF, um, putting in nominations and forwarding information. Um, one of the things that um, is not always clear, too, is that somebody has to gather all that money um, from the lifters so that they can be entered. So, in essence, we have one to maybe two full-time equivalent staff who just do IPF stuff. What would we do if we didn't have to pay that? We'd turn it around and probably put it in a Pro-Am series. Um, one of the things we have discussed, I don't think we have any consensus um, on the executive, is um, essentially extending prize money to our nationals okay. um, for the elite-level lifters. Um, but other things we have, obviously, at this point, um, the Arnold Sports Festival is um, sort of the granddaddy or grandmother of all of the media shows, if you will. Mm. Um, that meet, in and of itself, we give away about $50,000. Um, the meet costs a couple hundred thousand, but um, we also um, have other venues accessible like that. And so we've talked for years about having a pro circuit or a pro-am circuit um, where people might um, receive appearance money and prize money. Um, if we had the money, we would probably do something like that. Um, so those are considerations as well. 
Um, one thing that is is historically been the death of professional competition in powerlifting is that it's largely unsustainable. Hmm. Um, so once in a while, every year or two, um, you see a big money meet out there. And everybody wants to rush over and get into big money meet. And um, we don't discourage that necessarily. There are IPF consequences, but we don't discourage it um, because we figure people, if they work hard, ought to make some money, even if it's not from us. Um, but those meets tend not to last because they don't make any money. They can't break even. So without a philanthropist to donate all that money, um, none of them last. Um, and, and if, if we go down this road, we want to do something that is sustainable. Okay. Um, not just for this year, but in succeeding years, um, because people are not going to, um, take a chance on us, um, for a one-time big money meet. A few will, but most won't. And that I think is good judgment on their part. Really. The second part of your question though, was, will there be another U.S. affiliate if we leave? And the answer is probably yes. But as, as I said, we were talking on the phone earlier um, and paraphrasing Mr. T, I pity the poor fool who does that because um, it costs money to play. And in all honesty, it's a pretty much of a pain in the ass. Mm. Um, so someone has to do that stuff and they have to have the money to do it um, and be willing to devote the time um, if they're going to play at that level, they might do it on a smaller scale. Um, but at the end of the day, um, that's a, that's a significant step down from where we are 400 lifters internationally and 600 lifter appearances. Um, that's the biggest presence in the IPF. So, um, will they, will they be able to find somebody? Probably. Um, will they do it as well as we do? Probably not. Um, certainly not on this scale. All right, yeah, I, I'm actually curious with that Pro-Am series, and I'll maybe circle back to the other thing. You said there was talks about it for a little bit now. Has there been just any sort of structure that that, w what that would look like? Because we actually discussed it on, um, I think, two episodes ago on Two White Lights that Jen Thompson even suggested it, and we all thought it was a terrific idea. And like you said, with the money that goes to the IPF, and that money can be allocated something for the lifters, has there been any sort of like structure in the past built uh, for a pro-am series? Well, I think the prototype for it is the Arnold, okay. um, which is strictly invitational and based on essentially lifter performances. So at, at the Arnold, um, we have a mix of lifters and obviously with seven competitions, you know, you, you get some of the very best and you get some, um, who are sort of second tier elite as well. Um, but that's really the prototype, um, to provide invitations for top level lifters and, and, and some encouragement to participate. Um, a lot of lifters and particularly, um, raw lifters, they, they seem to compete more often, um, could probably sustain a three or four or five stop tour. Um, so that was our thought in terms of that. And, and the, if you look at the Arnold again, uh, a significant percentage of people um, who participate in the Arnold, about a quarter to a third, are people who are from the surrounding few states um, because they want to be there. 
and that's the that's the the rounding out of what would be a pro amp circuit. So we've done some thinking about it. And do we have the, the formula? I, I don't think so yet. Um, but we've kicked it around for a long time um, as a way to uh, basically give back to the lifters. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that it, it provides the opportunity for to, the Arnold is really the biggest social media event in the world, honestly. Um, more so than worlds and more so than nationals. Um, everybody in the world watches it and we'd like to provide our top level lifters with that kind of exposure more often. Um, so going back on the international uh, part of it with the affiliate, has there been, I think the the talk is a lot of the sponsorships that the USAPL has being jeopardized here with a potential IPF affiliate. So I think the business side of it and the logistics side of it will be difficult for any sort of United States affiliate, at least for the first three to four years, I would assume. But if those per potential sponsorships kind of leave from the USAPL, what would be the repercussions of, of that as far as... Well, it, it's not entirely clear to us that they would leave. Mm-hmm. Um, some would and some wouldn't, and some more people would sign on. In, for every given meet, um, in terms of things like title sponsorship and presenting sponsorships, there are more people who want to do it than we have places for them to. Um, and I, I think that, you know, one of the things that, that people think about when they think of sponsors is that those sponsors are loyal only to a federation. Um, but they would be really crappy businessmen and women if all they really cared about was aligning themselves with one organization and they didn't think about where they were going to make money. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, what are the things we're aware of is that the United States is the biggest market in the world for powerlifting equipment, whether it be because lifters have to have 15 new pairs of knee sleeves every year or, or what have you. Um, we're the single biggest market in the world. And in as much as we offer a sponsor exposure to that market, um, we figure that they'll probably stay. It'll be it'll have value to them. Yeah, I was I was assuming that as well. Uh, I just there has been a lot of talk of that, and that's why I would decide to bring it up. But I still think with the potential talk of sponsorships being pulled out of the United States, you still have to think of it logically because a lot of the top lifters are with in the United States and the market is with the United States United States as well. So internationally, there's still some strength there, but I don't know if it's an exact deal breaker. Yeah. Hard to tell. Mm-hmm. I mean, our objective is, is really the same as it's always been, which is to provide high quality meets that are entertaining. Yeah. And if they're entertaining, people will watch them. Yeah. Um, I, I think the Arnold shows that. Has, so with that, if the USAPL does leave the IPF in that regard, would there be a potential to maybe get like some international lifters within the Arnold? Because you're you're not affiliated with the IPF at that point, so you're kind of at a... And we've seen it with certain meets. Invite meets happen either on the untested side or on the tested side. So can potential invites be sent to international lifters? Sure, if we knew who they were. Okay. What, one of the... Uh... One of the things that people don't understand, and the Arnold in Columbus at least, 
is largely American, um, but it's not for want of inviting international lifters. And some come and some don't come. And, you know, it depends on a variety of things, um, what their national schedule is like and what their objectives are for the year. And, you know, all of those things, um, whether they see themselves winning money, probably um, those, those sorts of factors play in. Um, would we go right outside of the IPF and invite people who aren't in the IPF? I, I probably wouldn't go that far. Um, but would we be open to having international lifters? Sure. Um, why not? Yeah, I think I, I, because I think a lot of the lifters down in the USAPL still want an international presence, um, especially the newer lifters. I think the newer lifters within the USAPL still value international competition. Um, and a lot of discussion so far has been how can, you know, we have the cake and eat it too. And I think that would be a potential solution to it is to have, much like Major League Baseball or National Basketball Association, they can sign international talent because they don't have this weird relationship with an international body. They're able to do that. So that was a potential solution that um, I thought thought would be interesting to ask you. Sure. I mean, I think we'd be open to that if if we we went the way of the NFL and Major League Baseball and in sort of a largely American um, organization. I'm sure we'd be open to that. I don't see why not. Mm-hmm. Um, every year, here's a something that you know, one of the duties of the president that is not in the public eye. Every year, I probably answer thirty to fifty. Um, request for visas um, from foreign lifters who just want to come to the United States and lift. Mm. So, I mean, there are people who want to come here and lift in our meets and probably still would. Yeah, I, I could I could definitely confirm that. Um, I think, I, I still think, regardless of the international presence, which still has a really strong one, I think within the United States there has been uh, extremely influential lifters, uh, especially within the USAPL, that people from other countries would like to compete against. Uh, people still do value that international um, international play. So, speaking of international competitions, uh, this was brought up recently with the IPF extending. It looked like uh, some of their suspensions to possible raw nationals if a lifter competes in a federal uh, in an international meet. That's not within the IPF umbrella. And I just want to get your thoughts on that. And how would that affect certain lifters and coaches within the USAPL? Because the lifters, I think, understand that if they do a meet, say, like the showdown, which is an untested international meet, that they'll get suspended from from the IPF World's team. And it seems like they're totally okay with it, with the lifters. But now that it's extending to Raw Nationals, the coaches have to make a decision on whether or not they can te- they can coach certain athletes because they too don't want to be suspended from USAPL Raw Nationals or IPF World. So, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, this is a this is a sort of an issue that has long legs. And um, when we talked earlier, I talked about the Ernie France suit, and mm-hmm. it was a, a suit. By Mr. France um, against the IPF for sanctioning lifters who 
participated out of the IPF umbrella. Um, the IPF never defended that, and, and Mr. France received the summary judgment. Um, but the basis of that suit was it was an antitrust suit. Um, essentially, that that the IPF was at, uh, attempting to establish a monopoly in the United States in terms of powerlifting. That's the distant history. It, it's been a, a subject of a lot of discussion and a lot of rule changes over the years. And so there have been multiple and repeated attempts to put a rule into place that basically said if you compete for some other international organization in their international meet, you will be suspended from the IPF. Several years back, after a lot of discussion on the IPF executive, that was rewritten to be more moderate. So basically, if, if you participated in an international meet, then you wouldn't be eligible internationally. But we never suspended anybody or rendered them ineligible in the United States because it goes against United States case law. Mm -hmm. um, that case law hasn't changed. And, and so, but the IPF constitution has, and the IPF constitution now says, if you participate in somebody else's nationals, you can't participate in any nationals under the IPF umbrella. We're not going to, we're not going to enforce that. It's against the law here. Um, we like to think that people come to our nationals because they have a good time and they enjoy it. Mm -hmm. um, not because we're going to punish them if they don't. Um, and the same applies to coaches. The other issue is that nobody is here, um, maybe internationally, but nobody here is sitting around looking at everybody else's meet results and saying, ah, there's one of our lifters and he lifted it in somebody's nationals in Las Vegas. Therefore, they can't come here. We don't care about that. Um, and nobody has time for that. We would care if they participated in somebody's drug-tested nationals and failed. Um, we would recognize somebody else's suspension. Um, but if they go out and participate first, we're probably not going to know. And second, we don't care. Um, yeah. Would they still be ineligible internationally? Yeah, they would. Because um, that's an IPF rule. But not legally enforceable here. All right. Yeah, that's that's um, that, that's an interesting thing. So, all right. So, again, then if the USAPL leaves the IPF, which the conversation is getting stronger on happening, would those rules apply? Not to us. Okay. That was one of the big motivations for a lot of USAPL lifters to, I think, start getting vocal that they would like to see the USAPL leave the IPF was that specific incident because there's so many different coaches who coach, I don't know, somewhere between 10, if I'm being liberal, 10 to 20 lifters at Raw Nationals. And they could possibly be jeopardized if they coach someone in the untested federations or within um, within an international meet. So that was that was a that was a pretty unpopular thing that they saw within the USAPL with uh, that IPF mandate. Yeah. Well it, it it doesn't resonate well with us. One of the things I said, someone asked me probably I guess maybe ten years ago or more, <clears throat> when we were obviously much smaller, they said, What if if you could wish for anything in powerlifting, what would it be? And my answer was, I would wish that that people could make a living here and mm -hmm. do powerlifting as lifters and coaches and 
and now social media personalities and, and make a living doing this. Um, if, if we're saying that you don't have the right to do what's best for your business, then we're denying people the opportunity to make a living at it. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would say is that I've coached lifters in the untested federations too. So, um, not to name any names, but um, if I did, you would know them. Because um, at the end of the day, and um, here's here's something that people don't really know very well, but um, we actually get along with the untested federations just fine. Um, because we all know that um, we're doing a different thing here, and they know that um, you know their lifters um, who are using shouldn't come here, and our lifters know that if they're going to go there, they're going to be competing against people who are using um, no harm, no foul. We don't care. At the end of the day, we're all just a bunch of muscle heads anyway. And no, we got no argument with them. Um, and, and why would we? I mean, they're no threat to us. So I, I, I don't ever see us um, enforcing those kinds of things. People got to make a living here. Okay, and then, but but to be clear, if this uh, this separation does not happen, what would those coaches would be, or and lifters would be suspended from Raw Nationals if they compete in a meet like showdown? No, we're still not doing that. All right, that's good at, to know. At the end of the day, um, you can't compel me to break the law. All right. I mean, federations, sports federation rules are one thing, but you can't compel me to break the law. Not doing it. Okay. Right. Well, that's going to make a lot of coaches and lifters happy. I can tell you that right now because that was a big um, that was a big question mark with uh, the recent USAPL post is what does it mean for those lifters? So um, I know personally a lot of lifters would actually be happy to hear that. I, I can tell you, though, that um, it's not to say somebody won't enforce it. I mean, you know, people, lots of people across the world and, and particularly officials and other lifters are going to be looking at the showdown and, other similar meets and, and they're, they know who, who our lifters are. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so whether they um, pick up on that and report that and prosecute that, um, I, I don't know. It's hard to predict that. Yeah. I mean, it has nothing to do with us, but, um, that is the rule. That's the international rule and, and they can enforce it however they see fit. All right. And, Legitimately, at the end of the day, they can probably punish us for not enforcing it. Yeah, I think yeah, that's that's the uh, the big question going around is like, how would that actually be, you know, punishable? So would it be like an undisclosed fine? What would be the punishment from them, or is it is it disclosed yet? No idea. Um, it, it it's hard to say. I mean, they can assess whatever fines they see fit. The IPF Constitution allows them to do that. Well, you know, like I, I'm, I'm curious about this uh, because we, we talk so much about the USAPL relationship with the IPF, but I think as a USAPL lifter, what are some things that the USAPL is working on for its future for uh, the organization itself? Um, what, what are they planning on doing with the lifters, and um, is there any sort of goal set out in the future to you know make the USAPL um, better for the lifters? It's uh, a hard question. Um, you know, I, I was on a podcast uh, quite some time ago and, 
And the, the question um, had to do with racial equality and, and what we're doing to um, essentially um, bring equality and balance. And um, my response to that was probably not very responsive, but what I said was, um, you, you don't have to change your system if you were doing the right thing to begin with. And um, it, a lot of federations, and to, to paraphrase myself, um, a lot of federations are run by a lot of rich old white guys. And my response was, you really should look at our executive committee um, because that's not us. Um, and a lot of federations, not, not in powerlifting per se, but a lot of sports federations are run by people who aren't athletes um, or who aren't coaches and, and who really there's a, a big divide between them and, and the athletes. And that's not us either. We're all still coaching and we're all still lifting. And, um, and so, so we're much closer to that. But to respond directly to your question, one of the things that we think about and, and we think about it all the time is the awareness that USA powerlifting is um, comprised of in 2019 before the pandemic, there are 21,600 lifters who competed locally in, in summit nationals, but who are essentially local level, level or lower level national lifters. And only those 400 competed internationally. We, we think about the local level lifters all the time. Mm -hmm. They're our bread and butter. And, and in as much as we can make competitions exciting for them and equivalent for them. I mean, if, if you go to meets across other federations, the meet may be very different from one place to another and one federation to another. And we want people to know what to expect. Um, and by the same token, we want them to all be treated the same and to have a fair shake so that the judging is the same and, and, and all of that. In, in our mind, um, in, in not to make excuses because there are always things we can learn and do better, but that's always been our objective mm -hmm. to, to make lifting a positive sort of um, growth experience for people at every level. Yeah. That's really, that's really part of the reason why we added all the new divisions this year because we want people to um, have the opportunity to compete with us, um, to do parabench and to do adaptive lifting and, and so on and so forth. That's the reason why we added the youth division um, initially, later, later killed by the IPF Congress, but we started later. Um, because we want kids to be able to live with us and grow up with a healthy, strong lifestyle. Yeah. Um, it's always been our objective. Uh, yeah, and I think that was echoed on the last pod of one of the podcasts we did with uh, Joe Stanek, Marcellus Williams, and Steve DeNovi is in the broad scheme of powerlifting, at the end of the day, it's just a hobby to get you healthy and strong. Uh, and I think th even with this, um, with the the relationship between the USAPL and IPF and those mandates regarding drug testing, it's who do you want to satisfy? 
those 400 lifters, or even getting more specific than that, those 20 lifters who have national championships or records, or do you want to satisfy the 21,000 who want to compete on a drug-free platform? So that's a huge that's a huge factor that goes into play with deciding the um, the, the fate of the USAPL and IPF. It, it is, and I would tell you that we'd be pretty lousy business people if if we let a program of not very many lifters that loses us a lot of money to dictate what we do with a program which largely supports the organization for a whole lot more people. And yeah. you, you have to know your customer base. And, and our customer base is, is largely comprised of local level folks who come and lift in a couple of meets and go away and come back later and lift in a couple of meets and, um, and come back because they had a good time. Yeah. You know, a, a thing that I was curious about, um, because I think the, the reason why I stuck with the USAPL has been Raw Nationals. Uh, Raw Nationals was an experience for me like no other. I wasn't planning on doing USAPL meets after Raw Nationals, and it was so great that I stuck around. But within my time in the USAPL and got more serious into the sport, there has been some things that I think lifters uh, have an issue with with the Federation, and they try to relay it over. So I think the big uh, – there's two questions here. How much of that do you really hear – and then two, like how specific of the problems do you get? Because one of the big things we talked about on Two White Lights was the media rights at Raw Nationals. And it felt like occasionally the USAPL didn't exactly know how it was affecting the lifters and potentially could be hurting a large portion of lifters who could, one, be making a living off it, but two, help the USAPL grow exponentially. How do we deal with the media rights? Our, our media rights are relatively consistent with other sports. And, and let me tell you that um, Raw Nationals, as huge as it is, doesn't make any money. And, and so if, if people are out there selling their stories and selling our event, um, you know, if... The, they wouldn't let you do that in the NFL, and and we don't either. But at the end of the day, if if you want to have events like Raw Nationals with with Gino and video screens and looks like a rock concert, something's got to pay for that. Mm-hmm. And and a big piece of that is the media rights. And if if we gave it all away, um, then we couldn't pay. Yeah. Well, is there any solutions to potentially keep that and also find a way to maybe make money off it? Like, uh, I, I think it was suggested on one of the podcasts we did with Joe Stanek of just, if you're a primetime level lifter, uh, have that part of the package. But also, if you want to pay a fee of, you know, a, a media rights pass, they can do that. And I think the people who are really dedicated with that will actually... Um, would actually take that opportunity. Has anything ever been passed to you on that, like a suggestion? Yeah, and here's a funny thing. Um, that is what we do. Um, pe- people do have to to pay a fee to um, if they're going to video for us or they have to pay a fee to the people who run the video and the media for us um, because basically 
the the media company pays us money to have the rights to to, to do the video, to do the pictures, whatever, and it would devalue their contribution. Um, but but we do refer them to them, and and some people do pay. Um, more people object, however. Interestingly enough, um, it, it, as you said, some people will pay, and some people do. Mm-hmm. Um, but most people just complain because um, they couldn't get their videographer up there on the platform for nothing. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, th- I, I think the reason why you have some of the complaints is because they specifically want a vision for either their YouTube channel, Instagram, uh, whatever social media data, whatever social media they use. And I was just thinking, like, it would there be a way potentially, say, if someone with a YouTube channel is like, we will pay this amount of money if my video, my specific videographer, uh, if he was able to have a media pass, like has that ever been passed your way? Because I know, I know there was a lot of you know complaints from it uh, within Raw Nationals, but has that ever been you know proposed? Yeah, and and we would actually consider it. Okay, um, with with some reasonable ground rules. Um, you you may have seen at the Arnold um, where we threw people off the platform who thought they should be up there with their video camera and. We've also had incidents where people have brought their videographers around and disrupted everybody else warming up because they were getting a shot. And and, and we can't have that. Um, everybody's entitled basically to a fair shake. And, and, and so whether we reach an agreement with them about having a media pass, there are some things they just don't get to do. Um, they can't run up in front of the crowd and stand in front of the crowd and in front of our camera in our live stream video and take pictures of their lifter. Um, and, you know, they get pretty irritated about that, but um, at the end of the day, they still can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think, I think it actually is going to be some great information for lifters who listen to two white lights. Um, and you know what, sir, cause we've been talking for almost an hour now, circling back to the USAPL and IPF. I think right now, based on what we see on Instagram, and what we see on social media platforms, even Twitter, it seems like the tone of the USAPL is all is within the organization is in favor of leaving the IPF. What are the steps that will get people there? Um, I, I think just I think a lot of assume you just leave and it's a clean break. But is there some sort of vote that has to go on to, or is is that is that the goal? from the executive board, uh, extending to you, uh, it's, I, I think based on tone, people are implying that it's clear, but I don't think we've had a definitive statement that is clear. So the question you're asking is, have we decided to leave the IPF? And the answer to that is no, there are, in effect, we're negotiating right now about the issues that, um, are, are deal breakers for us, um, versus, um, the things that are important to them. And somebody, yeah, probably a lot of somebody's suggested that this is really a personality conflict between me and the IPF president. Um, and um, I would tell you that, that that the IPF president and I get along fine. Um, it's not about that. Um, it's about really sort of differing visions of where we're going. And, and on their part, 
what they see as their requirements in terms of pursuing IOC recognition and whether or not you believe that's ultimately going to happen or not and, and whether it, it will. First IPF application for IOC recognition was in 1998. If that tells you anything. Um, but um, in terms of whether we've just decided to leave um, in, say, up years and we're down the road, um, that hasn't happened. And um, we're discussing sort of what can be a middle ground here. Um, and I don't have any way to predict whether it'll work or not. Um, I do know there are some um, drop-dead issues for us. Um, and, and I would tell you that the core of them really have to go to whether or not we're going to become an untested federation. Um, and, and I suspect that, that that would be the, the issue at which we would say we're no longer going to be a part of this. Um, will we get there? I don't know. Um, are there accommodations? Will, will the negotiations bear fruit? Um, it's hard to say. Um, we've been doing this for a while. Like I said, we started in 2019, um, attorney to attorney, um, which what we thought was a reasonable accommodation at that point. Um, it, it's a moving target that apparently is not a, acceptable at this point. Um, but by the same token, there are things from our perspective that are also not acceptable. If, if we were to leave, um, obviously, we're going to have to talk to our membership about ship about it in some way. Um, could at the end of the day, could I just write a letter and say we resign? Probably, um, but nobody has ever done that, so nobody knows. Um, the last U.S. affiliate in the IPF was kicked out, so I mean, I don't know. We're in uncharted territory here. Yeah, that's why I, I, I thought I should ask because um, I think what happens a lot of times uh, on social media and, you know, when, whenever news is bought up, it seems like that's what you're going to do. And you never said that explicitly. The USAPL has never said explicitly that they're leaving the IPF. Like, a podcast title was The USAPL Leaves the IPF as in a statement. And I was like... No, they, they didn't yet. Like, we got to get confirmation from that. And I think right now is a perfect opportunity to ask someone, is USAPL leaving the IPF? And uh, it sounds like there's still way, you're still trying to salvage um, a relationship between the IPF. You know, at the end of the day, having a, an outlet for our lifters um, is valuable to us. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not a moneymaker. Um, doesn't support the organization, but it's valuable to us and it's valuable to those lifters as well. Um, and we'd like to keep it if we can. Um, you know, um, at the end of the day, there's some point at which we won't sacrifice everything um, to do it. And, you know, somebody asked a question, um, and I forget where, but somebody asked a question. So, Basically, how does it work in other national federations and in, in terms of drug testing? And I'll come back to that if you remind me later. But um, just in terms of competition, and, and most national federations first are much smaller than us. 
and second are comprised of people who are never going to compete internationally, and so they don't. Um, and a few elite lifters who basically are on their national teams and who come out to Worlds or NAPFs or whatever region is. Um, but that's really, compared to the, the population of powerlifters in the world, that's really a small, small handful. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of the day, when they receive government support to um, Scandinavian countries, I'm thinking of, and some Western European countries in Russia and, and even some South American countries, they receive some government support for their national team, which assists them with travel in some countries, pay training expenses and what have you. But that's very few people. Um, that's very different than we are. Um, there's no government support here. Um, at the end of the day, there really is no money given what it already costs to, to pay the top 20 lifters in the U.S. $1,000 a month or, or whatever. Some countries pay more than that, but um, there just isn't. So it's going to be a different model all the way around. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're primarily, you know, their, their models are off really closer to Olympic models or professional models in ours. And, and we're really, even though we do try to pay prize money, we're really a federation of 99% amateurs. Yeah. So it, it looks very different. Um, how does it work drug testing wise in other countries? Most, most of the ones who actually do testing in 80% of the IPF does no testing at all. Um, but for the ones who actually do testing, that testing is paid for by their governments. Um, and we have no government to do that. So we're, we're self-funded. Yeah, I was, I was actually told that the CPU's WADA compliant test costs around like $400, $450 each. So with WADA, how much would we be quoted for a test? Or USADA, that would be USADA, right? Well, it, it's not just a test. Um, and, and so it, it, it's easy to say the test costs whatever. Um, it, it costs about, I don't know, 250 bucks for just the analysis of a test in a water lab. Some more, some less, depends what lab you go to. But, um, but then there are other things to go with it. There's the administrative fees for managing your doping program and the cost of doing therapeutic use exemptions, um, which under an IPF system, we would just pass those on to the lifter. It'd be 100 or 200 euros that the person applying for the T we would have to pay because we're not going to pay that. Um, and I can tell you that we do probably in the U.S. 300 TUEs a year. Um, so you're looking at a gigantic cost just for that. Um, there's the cost of results management. Um, there's the cost of doping fines. Um, when you have a collector that comes out, um, you pay them for each doping collection that they do, um, but you also pay their travel and their per diem and their hotel. Um, so depending on where you are, 
you may have $10,000 invested before you start testing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a long way probably of not answering your question very well. If you average it across all of those fees, um, including out of competition fees, um, for our 200 tests, we're going to get basically we're looking at at approximately a thousand to two thousand dollars a test, averaged over all of those fees. Okay. Um, and and see, here's a here's an interesting thing. Um, the CPU pays about ninety thousand dollars a year for testing. At least that's what they say. I have no reason to disbelieve them, um, but. Um, the overhead is reduced because while they do a local testing, they don't do much of it because they don't have many local meets, especially now, um, but they have provincials um, and they have nationals. And then you send out a drug testing team to six meets a year um, and your overhead reduces. We have 400 meets a year. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think their output per like year is within the meets they put on is like monthly for the USAPL. I think Texas alone probably puts a, puts together more meets than like certain countries, especially Canada. Texas alone puts out more meets than most countries in the whole world. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so here's a, here's a logistical difficulty. It's not a, one for us, but it is anyone who wants to do testing for us. Say somebody wrote us a $5 million check every year and we could do all the testing we wanted to do. There aren't enough accredited DCOs in the United States to do testing for us. Mm. Um, there, there are some weekends. We, we average about 12 meets a weekend. Um, so some weekend, weekends there are 20 meets. That would be 20 people as a minimum, except you have to have one of each sex um, to go out and test people. Um, so that would be 40 people. Um, there aren't that many. Yeah. Um, and, and those people have other responsibilities. They have to test track and field and NCAA basketball in as much as they do it in the UFC and so on and so forth. Um, we're, our testing demand is greater than anything they've envisioned, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, well, I, I've made this argument, uh, one of the episodes we did, I think with a lot of professional sports, they have a label of being drug-free or drug-tested. But when you start getting into Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NBA, and you start finding out how many players are actually tested, uh, how they do it, also with the investment that's made in those players... It starts to not seem as drug-free, and I think the USAPL might be the closest thing to a drug-free sport in our country because of how much they test certain people. And I mean, if you're a good lifter, you're going to get test more. But there's, yeah, I I think you're right, and that's really the objective we wanted um, that that people would be tested and. You don't have any deterrent value if there's no chance you're going to be tested. And if if you test one percent a year or two percent a year, or you have a registered testing pool of twenty or thirty or fifty, or it doesn't make any difference, um, 
the NFL has 1,600 players, more or less. Um, and if you test 50 of those a year, that's not much of a percentage, and the odds are good. One of the problems that existed in a lot of sports over time is that people were willing to take the chance that they wouldn't be tested because if if you go to, say, a powerlifting world championship um, and you know that you have a 2% or 3 or 5% chance of being tested and you don't get tested, who are you at the end of the day? You're still the world champion. Mm-hmm. And you go home and and receive the accolades in some countries' money and in some countries an apartment and government support and a car and whatever um, because you're the world championship and it's worth a gamble. Yeah. Um, and and I'm not even saying I blame them. If, if I were in a country and I had limited possibilities financially and I could support my family by doing this thing, I'd play the odds. Yeah. Because there's, there's a good chance that I might be able to make a living and support my family. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, made, I make that argument with uh, a lot of, you know, what we see. I'm a big baseball fan, so I use baseball examples a lot. But, you know, a minor leaguer who's earning $40,000 a year, they all of a sudden take PEDs. They're getting then $3 million a year if they make the majors. And if you even get te- – if you test positive, you still have $3 million. They don't take that away. The organization doesn't take away the money you earned. So, um, yeah, it, there, there's an incentive there. Uh, have you ever heard – I mean, this has been happening a lot where we, we talk about drug testing in the USAPL and people have been making some um, accusations that it's not necessarily the most professional thing, especially on the state level. Uh, people have made assumptions that within the USAPL because – they compete locally. They know the officiating crew and they know the judges and there could be some potential foul play. Um, have you heard any of that? And what do you have to say to those assumptions and um, speculations? You know, at, at the end of the day, I'm probably a Pollyanna in some ways. I, I know that's probably hard to believe given probably what people are saying. But um, at the end of the day, most people want to do the right thing. And um, I, I know that a lot of officials um, have a commitment to doing, doing drug testing that's meaningful. Um, in any given time, the, the question really comes down to, at, at any given time, how many people are going to try to cheat? There's always a percentage. Yeah. Um, and, and will some and... Um, is it, is it possible that there are officials out there diverting testing away from people? I'm sure it's possible. Um, and, and how would we ever know? Um, I, I will tell you that we audit all the drug test results. Um, we know who's getting tested. And so, and we know where they place and we know um, sort of whether they're a person whose performance suggests that at least sometime they should be tested. And if they never are, um, there's more than a few occasions where we send somebody else to do the testing. Um, so um, is it possible? Sure. It's always possible. I mean, in, in Sochi, Russia, the, the Russians drilled through the wall and exchanged the urine sample. So if you want to cheat, ultimately, probably you can. 
Um, but most people don't want to, and we're watching. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if I saw someone that, uh, I'm in Arizona right now, if I saw someone who won time after time after time in Arizona and never were tested, um, the state chair and I would be having a discussion about that. Yeah. Um, or, or somebody would show up and do the testing for them. Um, so to answer that question, can it be done? Sure. Um, everything is possible. Um, is it done often? I, I don't think so often. Um, maybe that's my, my naivete. Um, I think most people want to do the right thing. Um, and I've seen meet directors test their personal friends who then failed. Um, and, you know, I, that's a personal crisis for them, but they did the right thing on the front end. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And uh, one more question uh, before we wrap up here. Um, I, I've been getting a lot of different things from people, and a lot of people are always concerned about equipment, especially at Raw Nationals. And it seems to be that a lot want a Lyco equipment at Raw Nationals. What's the process in that? Like, can you just get a Lyco equipment, or is it just a much more difficult equipment company to supply lifters? Alico sponsorship is limited. Okay. Um, and and Rogue has been very generous with us. Okay. So, at the end of the day, we would we would pick a company who has been supportive of us, uh, but also who supports us with equipment. And um, again, when you if you look at the budget of any given meet, it's it's nice to say that. Um, we're going to spend $150,000 on a particular kind of equipment. But if someone offers to sponsor us and donate that equipment, we're taking it. Yeah. Because the money's got to come from somewhere. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's going to be inf- great information for some lifters. Let, let, let me say one thing in closing, if I could. Absolutely. I know we've been here for a while, but um, some years ago um, – it was the mandate of our national governing body. We are a representative Republic, basically the mandate of our national governing body that we um, run this organization like a business and that we, um, while we don't have to make money, um, we can't afford to go broke if we're going to continue to serve our mission. And, and, and that really has been our objective over time um, to, to make the organization self-sustaining, that it doesn't necessarily depend on somebody to bail us out at any given time, um, or that there will come a time when we have coaches going internationally and we tell them, I'm sorry, but there's just no money to pay you. Um, and, and so we've always tried to, to keep it on an even keel. That has to do with our sponsor relations, um, how we've tried to to get the most bang for the buck out of our drug testing program. Um, and it allows us to invest back in things that, that lifters find important, which are national meets in the Arnold that are of tremendous world-class scope. That, that seems to be what, what is meaningful to people. Mm-hmm. One thing we have heard back from the actually hundreds of participants in raw nationals, Interestingly, we survey every participant. Um, I'm not sure everybody does that, but we do survey all the lifters. 
and all the officials at nationals. And a lot of them say it was great just to be a part of something like this. And, and we'd like to continue it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would agree with you there. Uh, I think more, I think a lot of lifters uh, value, you know, raw nationals and being kind of in that sphere, especially the, and on top of that, the Arnold. Um, yeah, I would, I would be in a complete agreement, agreement with you there. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this interview. Thank you for coming on Two White Lights. This is huge for the show. And again, I think a really, really great thing for the USAPL lifter. All right. Thank you for having me. And we'll see you guys Friday. Peace.